We are going to continue our walk through Romans chapter 8. Uh, it, uh, I must say, it truly has been a, an honor in this past couple of weeks to, um, I probably don't always act like it's an honor to, to stand here on Sunday morning, but it, it is a privilege I, I definitely don't feel like ever have deserved in that. Um, just can't imagine why the Lord would see fit to uh, put me in this position, but uh, I am thankful for the opportunity. Um, specifically, in this Romans chapter eight, is the just great truths that are in it, and uh, it is just a, a wonderful, wonderful chapter. But uh, we'll be in Romans eight. We're going to start in verse eighteen. Now I want to read to verse twenty-seven. But we're not going to cover all of that this week. We're going to go to verse 22. So our primary focus today, the sermon will be 18 through 22. Because this is really going to be a two-part sermon. So, if you would please, let's, uh, let's read along. We'll be in Romans 8, starting in verse 18 through verse 27. The word of the Lord reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are nothing Comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what was seen? What we see. But if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in word of prayer. Lord, as we, uh, as we approach your word, we pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and Lord, that you would give us hearts to believe the truths that are found within these words. Father, Lord, may you be our teacher. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our walk through this, uh, the title of this over the next two weeks is going to be called the Spirit, the, the Spirit's Assurance of Glory. And um, and the chapter eight of Romans is really is it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and um, we're just continuing that in the the Spirit's assurance of our future glory. Um, I remember as a a. a young believer, not necessarily young in age, but a young believer, that I had this thought that uh, one day I would be able to 
know enough of the Bible, I'd be able to pray enough that I would feel like I was just right next to the Lord. I had achieved something, some higher level of spirituality. Yeah, but praise be to God that he crushed that, that, that arrogant spirit of mine because as I learned, as I studied, as I read, what I noticed, what I saw was there was this divide between me and God. And as I learned who he was and who I was, the chasm was even greater than I ever thought it would have been. So as I grew, it was like he was further away. And the reason that was is because I was trusting in myself. I was not looking to him. And it's when we begin, to, when we look at ourselves, and as you grow, the chasm is wider. It's because we, we don't look to him. And and as that, re that became a reality, that was relying more on myself than the teachings of Scripture. Um, the Lord has indwelled all believers with the Holy Spirit, that we may have assurance, that we may have this union with Christ, and that we may no longer be slaves to sin and death. But it's not by our own strength. It is through His. And we must rely on Him. And that's been the whole point of Romans 8. It's like, how does the Spirit work in our life? And the result of our salvation, we have union with Christ. We are free from the law of sin and death. Uh, we get regenerate hearts. There is no condemnation. Now there is no condemnation. We will struggle with sin, yes. We're going to have struggles in our lives. We're going to have those struggles as long as we are in these fleshly bodies. But there is no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. How can this be? That's Romans 8. It's because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes all this a reality. This no condemnation status that we find ourselves in, it's the Holy Spirit that assures us of this. It guarantees us we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the fulfilled promise. Uh, verse 4, the Holy Spirit freed us from sin and death. Verses 5 through 11, the Holy Spirit changed our nature. Verses 12 and 13, the Holy Spirit empowers us to victory. 14 through 17, the Holy Spirit affirms our adoption. 18 through 30, the Holy Spirit guarantees our future glory. And the final element of that work is what we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks. It says the Holy Spirit confirmed and assuring, guaranteeing uh, our future glory. This is the doctrine of glorification. The final salvation. Uh, and as we think about salvation, it is kind of this already but not yet state for the believer. You're already saved, yes, but it's not final. As Paul says, you are saved. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. There is the justification, sanctification, glorification. You were justified at the moment of your regeneration. Sanctification is a process that all believers find themselves as from the time that we are first saved and you're first justified until the day that we are in his presence and final glorification. I mean, the, the, the meaning is we have been saved. In fact, we have been saved from eternity past. This is reality scripture teaches. We have been saved from eternity past. But we have not reached our final destination. And the Holy Spirit 
guarantees this glorification. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, it reads, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit guarantees our glory. The whole idea of this section is summed up in verse 30. And it reads, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation is never lost. The true believer will never lose their salvation. There is no true Salvation is something begun in the past, realized in the present, fulfilled in the future. And this is the glorious truth that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. What does the future hold for us as we wait here? So let's jump right in. Let's go verse by verse. Let's walk through this. Verse 18. As we concluded last week, we discovered that we have become heirs through the adoption as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, sharing in an inheritance with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we begin to look forward to this great eternal inheritance, which we will receive in our final glorification. And what we'll see in this verse is this in, incomparable glory, incomparable future glory. Without getting too deep in defining uh, words, uh, so last week, um, you know, I spent most of the week preparing. It was a spirit of adoption. I, I got up early last Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. Wasn't the weather beautiful last Sunday morning? It was 50-something degrees. Uh, Angel was out of town. I was home by myself. I was up at 6 o'clock. I turned air conditioners on. And I sat on the back patio with a cup of coffee. Was, I thought, well, let me turn on RefNet. RefNet is a wonderful thing to hear great preaching and uh it is just wonderful. I turned it on. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of the greatest expositors of Scripture in the 21st century. And it, as it pops up, it tells you what topic he's on. Adoption. I'm like, oh, well, hey, we're on the topic of adoption. Let me listen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I listened for 45 minutes. He spent 45 minutes defining the word received. Biblical. Reference after reference after reference, and he was defining what it meant in verse, I think it was 16. And I was like, wow. I'm mind blown sitting here listening to him. So we're not going to go that deep. We're not going to get that deep in the weeds as Martin Lloyd Jones does. Uh, first of all, I couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, we do need to take a look at some of these words and what they mean in the original language. Uh, but a few of these words I would like to take a closer look at to kind of help us understand what this verse is actually saying, what, it, what Paul is teaching us. Uh, so it begins with four, which Paul is referring back to verse 17, where it states that we'll be heirs and we will suffer with him. That is one of the great privileges of being a believer in our inheritance. We will suffer with him. Uh, uh, Paul says, For I have considered... Now, considered in this context is to reach a conclusion. Uh, so Paul has reached this conclusion that the suffering, now the suffering is very specific. This is uh, 
half of the year. It's the suffering for Christ. Specifically speaking of Christ's suffering, but as a believer, sharing in his suffering. So suffering for Christ. So Paul has come to the conclusion that the sufferings at this present time, so that he's considered that these sufferings that he faces in, in, in light of the gospel. The present time here refers to our time on earth. So all of us in this room today are in this present time. If you're a believer in Christ, this is where you are. You're in this present time. So we have seen in the, the Spirit confirms our hope. No longer believers bound by a hopeless faith, but our eyes have been opened to future hope in Christ. So we have a new governing authority we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, the new governing authority is the Holy Spirit. It allows us to hold fast and believe these truths that we find. And we are heirs with Christ. Um, one of the great privileges we get to suffer with him. There are many great privileges, but in this present time, one of our great privileges is to suffer with him. And that should not be a surprise to us. In John 15, he was speaking to the disciples. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Paul, he's saying, I have counted the cost, and this is what I have found. That the sufferings that we face are nothing in comparison to glory that awaits us. The sufferings for Christ. And, and, and I want to kind of make this point. There are a lot of sufferings. There are a lot of things that could, that could bring suffering upon us. Uh, they could stem from our own actions and choices. They could stem from somebody else's actions and choices. And we did nothing to bring these on ourselves. Um, but the distinction we have here is sufferings for Christ. For the truth, for, for God, for the gospel. Uh, and the reason I want to make this kind of really stop here on this point is because all of us, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, you have a tendency to view things in light of your own experience, from your own culture. And that can lead us astray when, when we were trying to rightly understand the word of God. Especially today, uh, as many of us, Self included, probably feel like our, our God given rights are being stripped away from us right in front of our face. It's just being taken away. And now, as much as it pains me to see this happen in our country and the state that it's headed to in the future, what it seems to be headed to, and the many things that I disagree with, we can't let these feelings or emotions allow us to wrongly interpret the scripture. More government persecution is probably coming. But the question we have to ask ourselves when we face this, is this persecution for holding fast to our nation's founding beliefs? Or is persecution holding fast belief in Christ, not forsaking Christ? The line could very easily become blurred, and it probably will. But specifically, when we talk about these sufferings, these are sufferings for the sake of Christ. So, in order for us to stay true to the Word, to stay true to good hermeneutics, as Pastor Andy likes to really drive home, so that we rightly understand the Scripture. And, and we got to remember our historical context. 
And I think we can find some common ground here on our differences that we may have between persecution for Christ's sake and persecutions, other persecutions we may face. Um, other persecutions we may face may be shared not just by believers, but other people. So we want to be specific here. So Paul is speaking about suffering that he and his fellow believers faced in the first century. The early church faced uh, persecution from religious uh, organizations, groups like the Jews, the Hellenists, but then they also faced government persecution as Christianity became illegal in the Roman Empire. Uh, many believers would in the coming years after Paul writing this, uh, they, they would be uh, executed if they did not deny Christ and worship Caesar. There was a point in time that they, they were given a choice. You either die or you sign a certificate and say that you worship Caesar. This was what the first century church faced. Um, many of them were mocked. They were ostracized by their communities. They lost family, friends, or possessions were taken away. Uh, they faced prison time and ultimately faced a martyr's death. Think about the apostles. Uh, someone shared on Facebook, I believe Bill Rogers shared something he saw. It was like, right out of the apostles, how the apostles died. Everyone faced a martyr's death. Except for John. It's interesting with John. John was boiled alive and survived to live out his days and end up on the island of Patmos. But every one of the apostles faced a martyr's death. Then Paul tells the church in Rome and all of us today, I have counted this cause. It is nothing. That is nothing compared to the marvelous riches that await us. Suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. And in many ways, in the modern American church, we have forgotten this. Because we have such wonderful freedoms that we can come here, we can worship our Lord and Savior together without facing persecutions. We have kind of forgotten this, that the Christian life comes with suffering. And this is why I, I believe, I mean, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't come, we don't face any suffering. It's almost completely void. There may be some minor sufferings that we face, but nothing is compared to what uh, maybe the church in China or the first century church faced. But I, I, and that's why I'm such a believer in church history, is that we can study and learn what they faced, how they handled it. Heresies arrived. What did they do? Uh, persecutions arise. How did they face it? What was their strength? What did they lean to? When you read uh, J.C. Ryle's book on the five English reformers, Almost every one of them that were burned at the stake, as they were being burned alive, resolved Psalm 51. And I thought to myself, what is it about Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. David repenting of his sin, Bathsheba. As these men are being burned alive, their first thought is to repent. I mean, just to repent Christ. What a wonderful testament. How to face suffering. How do you face suffering? You look to him. You look to him. And in, in thinking on this, you know, in Hebrews 12, 1, it talks about this great cloud of witnesses. When the book of Hebrews was written, in the chapter 11, it, 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 the, what we call the uh, the heroes of the faith, the, the, hall of, the, the, the kind of the hall of faith, these great testaments of men and women that were faithful, that was the ones that the writer of Hebrews was speaking to. 
those are the ones that we look to as we as we are on our Christian journey. But we today, we have 2,000 years of faithful saints that have gone before us that we can look back to instead. So suffering is part of the uh, it's part of the Christian life. Any persecution we may fight, face, no matter how severe, no matter how long, it is just momentary. It's temporary. Compared to the eternal glory that awaits. John MacArthur wrote on this, he says, As followers of Christ, our suffering comes from men. Where is our glory from God? Our suffering is earthly, whereas our glory is heavenly. Our suffering is short, whereas our glory is forever. Our suffering is in our mortal and corrupt bodies, whereas our glory, our glory will be in our perfect and imperishable bodies. And as believers, we must remember this truth. Everything that is before our eyes, everything that we see is temporary. And it's like a vapor, quickly fades. Our hope is not found here in the temporary, but our hope is in the eternal. Now as we move on to verses 19 through 22, uh, we see believers are not the only ones looking forward to the future. Creation looking forward as well. Now there are three different things we're going to be looking at for the, the glory. Uh, but this week we're only going to look at one. So 19 through 27 there's three different things that are looking forward to the glory. That is the uh, creation's longing for glory, the believer longing for glory, and the Holy Spirit's longing for glory. So verse 19 for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation with eager longing, some of your translations may say groaning. This eager longing or groaning is a lament of the present state of things. A longing for future glory that is promised. This groaning is a groaning of creation. Now, the, the, the Jewish people, as they studied the Old Testament, they understood this reality. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. So the Jewish people that have studied the Old Testament, and even in some of their secular writings, there was always this idea that the creation was corrupted and that it would be a new one. They were always looking forward to this. That, uh, the, the teaching that creation longed for a better faith than its current one was. Now, as we approach this, we, we, we need to ask a question. What part of creation is Paul talking about? God created everything, right? So what, what part is he specifically talking about? So we can kind of do a process of elimination to determine what parts of creation Paul is referring to. So first of all, angels are not subject to corruption, to the corruption of sin. So, we can eliminate angels. Demons, Satan, fallen angels, they are not going to share in the glorification. Their fate is already determined. Believers, believers are distinguished in chapter, in verse 23. So in this, Paul's not talking about believers. Unbelievers have no hope, no expectation of liberation exists for them. There is this is as good as it gets. This is their best life now. 
That is a common teaching within so many churches today. Live your best life now. How can I be the best I can now? sad to see so many people fall into the trap. As a believer, we're not looking for the best now. Our best is coming in the future. If we're looking to live our best life now, we are totally blind and have no hope in the glories that God has promised. So if we remove these, the only part of creation that remains is this, this non-rational part. Animals, plants, inanimate objects such as the, the earth, mountains, sea, water. This is what we're left with. The heavenly bodies, stars, planets. These type of things are what we're left with. And in context, this is a creation that is longing and groaning and lamenting its current state. This is what Paul's referring to. So creation... We look, it has an expectation of future glory. It's patiently waiting with expectation, and it's ready. If you were to look at the, this in the original language, the context, the way the verbs are set up, it would say, it's as if you're waiting. Have you ever like, been waiting on someone? And you know, you, you might check your watch, looking around. Or, or the greatest one, we might you know, go on our tiptoes around a little bit. Don't know why we do that, because that really gives us a better view. But, you know, you're expectantly waiting on someone, like you're waiting for a ride, and they're picking you up. That's the description that it's giving for the way creation is waiting. All of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation does not recognize believers yet. Because we are not as we will be. We do not appear as what we will be, but when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him. We are still veiled by this flesh, but creation is eagerly, eagerly awaiting our unveiling. Sin will be gone, flesh will be gone, we will be glorified with our Savior. Creation is looking forward to our glory. As we await the return of the Son, the return of Christ, creation is waiting for the day in which we, the true believers, will be glorified. It says that, they, that it is looking forward. It is looking forward to the revealing of the sons of God in the day in which we are glorified. So creation is looking forward to our glory. Verse 20. I'll be honest with you, we attended a wedding last night and I got to speak for a few minutes with a wonderful, wonderful saint in Christ. That, uh, he's one of these men that he can just pop scripture off the top of his head. Just, and as I was talking to him, I told him where we were going to be and he's like, oh, verse 20. Verse 20 is the key. Completely blew my mind is what I was going to be preaching on. But I'm going to leave it a little thought here. It's like verse 20. I was telling him about you know, defining creation. He's like, verse 20, it says for creation. Think about your creation. What is your creation? It's like, well, it's the, you know, we can eliminate the angels, demons, the believers, unbelievers. It's like, okay, creation. 
to creation was subjected to what? Futility. Not willingly. Didn't want to. But because of him who subjected it to it in hope. So God subjected it to it. He's like, okay. Think about creation. Was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to it in hope. It's like, all right, now let's think about John 3 16. For God so loved the world, cosmos, his creation, that he sent his only son, and those who should believe in him shall have eternal life. The creation, he loved his creation so much he sent his son. Not that he sent his son that everyone would be saved. No, he sent his, his son to redeem his creation. Just a side thought of a conversation I had that made me go, I'm missing some things in this. <laughs> but, um, just a side thought, I apologize for going that direction, but I just, it, it's had me thinking all night. Um, so, as we look at this verse, so for creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Uh, futility is being without success, unable to achieve a goal uh, or a purpose. So creation can't be what it was made to be. It can't fulfill its reason for existence. God's creation was good, right? In Genesis, God said it was good. No sin, no curse. Earth, the earth was perfect before the fall. Now we look at the word subjected. Indicates that nature did not curse itself, but was cursed by something or someone. Because of one man's sin, all of creation has been cursed. So, creation is done. We have pollution, we have smog, we have limited resources. And as much as we may try to stop it, and we should be good stewards of, of the creation that God has given us, but as much as we may try to stop it, it will never cease until God himself removes the curse. Creates a new heaven and a new earth. So all the save the planet thoughts. Yeah, we, we really should take care of what we have, but ultimately reduce greenhouse emissions. Can you really reduce them? Is it going to save the planet? Ultimately, no, because God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Um, I'm not saying it's either bad things by no means, but um, it's kind of a futile task that you're endeavoring to do. Uh, should we be recycling? Well, sure. We have limited research. We should do things like that. But don't expect that you're going to save the planet by this because just like we are decaying, the earth is decaying as well. Uh, but in spite of the curse, much beauty and grandeur are still there and many benefits of the earth. Uh, think about it. We, the earth provides for us. We get food. Uh, many, many just wonderful, beautiful sights to see. Uh, there are times that we, we may see nature just be just speechless at its beauty. We're getting these tiny glimpses of what nature, um, how nature was created. So nature was unwillingly subjected to a curse. Uh, nature's destiny is linked to our destiny. It is linked to our destiny. 
Adam, we sins, we corrupted the nature of all men. Uh, when man's glory is divinely restored, the natural world would be restored as well. So creation groans, patiently waiting for the day in which it will be set free from the bondage, from its bondage. It's waiting, it's longing with hope for his return. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Just that, that as we as believers, we should be longing and waiting. All the creation is the same. It is longing and waiting for that day. It wants to be restored. It, it wants to be what it was created to be. So we are looking for Christ's return. When we will be glorified, and creation awaits for the day of our revealing on Christ's return. So as we move to verse 21, it says the creation itself will be set free from the bondage, from its bondage uh, to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. Uh, will be set free. This indicates that uh, nature will not restore itself, but will be restored by God. In Matthew 19, verse 28, uh, Christ refers to this time as the regeneration. So there will be no sin. There will be no unrighteousness, no death, no sorrow, no evil, no crying. And well, what a marvelous and wonderful time to look forward to. Think about our world. There, there is the sin and death and sorrow and evil that exists. One day we'll all be gone. One day we'll all be gone. So the freedom of the glory of the children of God is the time when all believers will be freed from the sin, from sin and from the flesh. At this moment, we will begin to share in the eternal, eternal glory of God. And John reminds us of this in. Um, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. It is impossible for us to even begin to wrap our minds around the divine mysteries of what glory, glorification will look like. But with the Holy Spirit, that it is indwelled in each and every one of us believers, we can believe these glorious truths and have confidence, hope, that we are eternally secure with our Heavenly Father. We can't fully understand, but we can believe and have hope. As we move on to verse 22, as we wait, creation waits for our redemption. But until that day, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. The world groaning here, the word groaning here uh, literally means to groan together. So all of creation is moaning and lamenting its cursed state. Sin has polluted the whole universe. One sin by one man polluted all. One sin by one man. That is the gravity, the weight, the punishment that sin deserves.
But as we think about it, in this verse, it tells us this, this pain and suffering, this lamenting, this groaning, is not a futile pain because of its results. And Paul uses the language of childbirth to describe the current situation. Because the, the, the pain of childbirth is worth what it produces. Now, I can only speak from a man's perspective. But uh, it seems to be that um, once a mother is able to hold this precious new creation, this precious child in her hands, the, the pain of childbirth what Paul is telling us here. Creation is groaning and lamenting. We, as we will get to next week, are groaning and lamenting. But what we suffer is worth it. It's worth the future glory that we're in the face. And nature endures its own kind of labor pains expectantly waiting for that day in which all will be made new. But until then, creation grows. I want to close on a quote by uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this very thing. It, and it's, it's a wonderful thought to really think about, uh, especially now as we kind of get into the sign, time and seasons changing. He says, I wonder whether the phenomenon of spring supplies us with a partial answer. Nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and darkness of all that is so true of winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pains year by year. But unfortunately, it does not succeed. For spring, leads only to summer, whereas summer leads to autumn, and autumn to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principles of death, and decay, and disintegration that is in it. But it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying, as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing and hanging together until now. Creation knows there's something better. And I just, I, I think about Lloyd-Jones' description of that every year. It seems to be a try. Creation's trying, but it can't. It's like we can't. We may try and try and try, but we can never be a new creation. It is only through Christ it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit that we need. Do you long for the day of the Lord's return? I think that is something we've got to ask ourselves because we're pretty comfortable. We are pretty comfortable here. Do we truly long for the day of His return? All creation does. So should we. That should be our cry, the longing for its return. Do you view the sufferings of this age as incomparable to the glory that will be? This should be an encouraging word. As 
as what we face today, um, the death and suffering, persecutions that, that are just all around us. Um, yesterday was an interesting day for me toward the end of the day, I remember this realization. As I came in from work about one o'clock, there was a funeral in the cemetery. Um, we were getting ready to go to a, to a wedding and then I had to bring a gift over for a baby shower. And we went to a wedding. So we get to see a new birth, a union of a couple in Christ, and a death all in one day in the cycle of life. Um, there's something better. There is something better. That death is not fine. So Paul concluded that nothing in this world could do him, could, could, could be done to him that was comparable to the future glory, that to, to, the, to the glory that's the future hell. Even the day that he was beheaded, that was actually a gain for him. Because he knew what awaited. And he had confidence in that. And it is the Spirit's work in us that brings us to a place that we realize that this is not our home. This is not as good as it gets. There is a future glory. There is a future that is better than this. This is all temporary. we begin to long and groan as creation does for the coming king. This is our hope. This is our comfort. Do you know the hope? That is the final question. If you don't, call out to him. Call out to Christ. Call out to the Lord to reveal truth to you. And he is faithful. Let's pray. Christ's name we pray.